0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts, Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. Well, we're absolutely thrilled on Cold Steel today to have our friend of the podcast, and really national leader in trauma, critical care, and emergency general surgery back, Morad Hamid. Welcome, Morad. Thank you for joining us. It's so great to be
1: here, Chad and Amir. Thank you for having me.
0: So we're really excited to launch a new series within the Cold Steel Podcast family, and that essentially is a journal club. And first out of the gate, we've chosen your technical review of managing penetrating cardiac trauma. So we're really excited. The topic is uh, certainly close to all of our hearts, pun intended. And um, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're thrilled that you're on and we're thrilled uh, uh, to go through this content because I think, you know, discussing it in combination with the review paper, the Canadian Journal of Surgery, is probably really going to be helpful to a lot of folks. So thank you.
2: So Dr. Amit, what was the instigating reason for you actually writing this paper in conjunction with Dr. Ball, Alex Lee and Matthew Kaminsky?
1: Yeah, thanks for starting with that, Amir. I, I wanted to start with this disclaimer that um, I'm not a cardiac surgeon, uh, nor do I have any specific training in cardiac surgery. Um, I approach this topic with um, complete humility uh, as a student. Um, somebody who's very interested in the topic and as a trauma and acute care surgeon trying to write for the audience of surgeons that may not find themselves in this situation but do have um, sort of leadership and um, teamwork skills to coordinate the response in a critical situation and also have the technical skills uh, to at least um, get the exposure and get initial control. Um, And I wrote with um, colleagues um, who who do have a lot of experience in cardiac trauma and the technical nuances of this type of operating um, that's uh, Matt Kaminsky from Chicago and, of course, Chad from Calgary, um, and uh, a resident, Alex Lee, who um, devoted a lot of time to doing a big literature review, um, reviewed uh, hundreds of papers with us. And um, so what we wanted to present here is a technical primer on cardiac trauma um, uh, that's sort of well-researched and has some basis in evidence. Um, and. We know that we might fall short of this, but we didn't want to shy away from those technical nuances of cardiac trauma, like, for example, how to place incisions or what needles to uh, to pick or how do you actually do a repair or how do you actually do a you know transdiaphragmatic window. Things that may seem simple, but that sometimes the books may not may not actually provide the actual technical detail to do this. Um, so. In some ways it would have been great to to write almost like a graphic uh a graphic novel or a Toronto video atlas style um uh, uh publication on this to really get those you know technical nuances across um we tried to come close to it in this paper and it probably fell short but at least we thought it would be the start of a great discussion on you know getting uh getting some clarity about what actual technical Uh, strategies to use um, in cardiac trauma
0: as usual morad you're you are too humble uh, so the audience understands i think you know your training extends across not only canada but also miami and and south africa and you know uh, being witness to the videos that you have shown us in the hemorrhage control course here in canada you're certainly a very skilled operator in in this environment so we're going to try and exploit that uh, to the benefit of, of Amir and myself and, and our audience, for sure. Now, this is a, a review paper on penetrating cardiac injury. So we're going to put the blunt stuff aside, which is certainly interesting in itself, but clearly much, much more rare. So I'm curious, could could you start us off, you're, you know, you're on call, uh, you get a, a level one or a grade A or whatever the terminology is, trauma coming your way, it's going to generally be a stab to the to the chest and, and they come into the trauma bay where you're you're the attending and, and the trauma team leader i'm curious how, how you frame that initial uh immediate interaction with those patients what's relevant to you uh in particular in your assessment how are you how are you rapidly assessing that patient um and, and what are the absolute pearls and the absolute do nots going through your mind well
1: like most things in trauma this starts with a a 30,000 foot view um, and a systems-based response to the injury. It's a a high acuity, low occurrence injury and it requires um, a system set up and a lot of um, uh, forethought and planning. And so sometimes I think the most critical determinant of, uh, of good outcomes is a good trauma system that can bring that patient to you within minutes of the incident that can minimize downtime um, and um, minimize that period of hyperperfusion. Um, so that planning with um, EMS is key. Um, those um, transport protocols that uh, bring the patient um, to to a hospital that could be ready under ideal circumstances is great. Um, and um, sort of predefined um, coordination with the emergency physicians, uh, surgeons, uh, nursing anesthesia is is also key, uh, and that that trauma team response that sometimes includes um, activation of the operating room and of the blood bank and so on is also are also key components of it of a timely intervention. I think that uh, this injury is obviously so time dependent um, that you have to be primed and ready for it before it comes in, um, and I think that's one thing that trauma and ACS surgeons. Are used to thinking about is how to be ready for uh, a, a critical event before it happens. Um, once the patients arrive, uh, you uh, obviously want to move them quickly to uh, the uh, resuscitation um, uh, into the resuscitation room and onto the um, uh, onto the stretcher, um, and uh, you want to make sure that you have. Uh, predefined roles for the team, um, including airway management, um, uh, the right and left chest tube placement, uh, intravenous access, good coordination with nursing. Um, You need to have blood bank ready and the operating room on standby. Um, And then I think some of the initial key key, uh, clinical priorities are to do uh, uh, a quick primary survey, uh, understand um, how long the period of rest was, how good the perfusion is, does, is, does the patient have pulses, and uh, and then just proceed from there. It doesn't take that many clinical data points to to start to formulate an idea of how sick the patient is and what the next uh, uh, strategies might be.
0: I think that's well said, Morad. You, you know, there's a few pearls in there too that that are sort of, uh, I think, always dancing around our heads. You know, the first, at least for me is, um, you know we might argue especially in these scenarios never mind penetrating trauma in general that you know the abc of atls maybe is not exactly how we practice and there's certainly been a number of nice papers written about c being first or maybe even e being first meaning exposure and so i think it's probably i don't know if you agree but you know critical when these penetrating trauma patients roll in the exposure component in other words stripping them uh, uh, down and looking at every element of their skin from their axilla to their gluteal cleft to everywhere for those additional holes so you can start to work on trajectory in general uh, is important and then you know the second part for me is is the ultrasound uh, the extended fast examination immediately and obviously we're always going to start at the cardiac window uh, no matter if it's blunt or penetrating because I think as you'll probably go into in the context of when and when not to do an emergency department thoracotomy, uh, that's really the window that's going to change what we do in real time immediately. I'm curious how, how you sort of look at exposure and, and the ultrasound in particular.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely agree with you about uh, exposure. And sometimes we forget uh, to do the, the complete primary survey. The the primary survey from A to E should, you know, we should be able to do that within 30 seconds. Um, we don't have to always... Start interventions, but it's key to get good good situation awareness uh, with the full primary uh, primary survey, including exposure. Hundred percent agree. And the ultrasound has uh, has really sharpened our, um, our our diagnostic abilities. I think of several occasions where uh, the probe goes on on almost immediately um, as you're beginning the primary survey, and you'll have that information right away. Um, And so I think that the ultrasound has become an indispensable part of this assessment um, and it can govern your next moves uh, most definitely. There's some some limitations of ultrasound. Um, um, It is still operator dependent. It could be dependent on body habitus. It could be restricted by the presence of subcutaneous emphysema, but most of the time it's gonna give you um, fantastic information about fluid in the pericardium
2: let's walk it back for the, the humble colorectal surgeon in the room. And can it's you talk a little bit about uh, the anatomy for uh, cardiac injuries? And so I actually have pulled up on the screen and for all the listeners out there, head over to our YouTube channel to check out the accompanying uh, video that we have with this. And we actually have that paper <clears throat> pulled up as well. So can you talk just a little bit about this, Dr. Mead and Dr. Ball, about what is the anatomy that you care about when the about chemo- cardiac injuries? Well, Dr. Uh, May, well, you go we, first?
1: yeah, yeah. Thanks, Mir. We we um we tried to put this uh the box, the classic box, on this um image of a patient, and I think that um the box is um which is bounded by the clavicles above and the midclavicular line or the nipples laterally, and then a line connecting the um costal margins um and the midclavicular lines uh, as the inferior margin of the box. I think. Sort of the classic teaching is that any penetrate creating wound in the box, uh, and that box extends to to the back as well, um, is a cardiac injury until proven otherwise. And so it does require some ultrasonography, um, potentially um echocardiography or even CT to really definitively exclude a cardiac injury. So anything in the box is a cardiac injury until proven otherwise. Um, uh, but um, as Chad points out in the paper, that injuries originating from outside the box can also cause um, cardiac injuries. Uh, so it doesn't, it, we still have to ha- have um, vigilance and a high degree of uh, suspicion about um, injuries coming from outside the box that, that still could cause penetrating cardiac trauma. Um, but the box does give you sort of a guide and can heighten your suspicion um, when the injury is in that location. The other thing about the box, and Chad, Namira, and I wonder if you agree, It is I sometimes think that if an injury originates outside the box, there are likely um, associated injuries, like for example, injuries to the lung or injury to the pulmonary hilum or injury to the diaphragm. And so for those types of injuries, you if, if the patients are somewhat stable and you have a bit of luxury of time, you may it may affect your choice of incision. Um, an in-box injury is, uh, likely to be especially if it's an anterior injury uh, an anterior cardiac injury which is well exposed by a median sternotomy so if you have time you can go to the OR and do a median sternotomy get really good exposure An outside the box injury might require a thor- uh, natural an lateral thoracotomy to get exposure to associated injuries as well as to cardiac injuries. Um, Chad we never really talk about that specifically but what do you think of that?
0: Yeah, I think there's a few really important pearls there, and you know, they're uh, almost as always really come from some of the the titans in in the history of trauma surgery that that write a lot of this initially. And you know, your comment about injury outside of the box being possible with regard to the heart is is critical. And of course, comes from Dr. Andy Nickel in in uh, in Cape Town, in South Africa, and his PhD. He's shown that very very nicely. Um, the other thing maybe to comment just to back up a little bit, for me anyway, is is that, you know, most of the initial manuscripts that looked at test performance, sensitivity and specificity of the extended fast exam and the cardiac view published things of uh, really that indicated it was a perfect test. And, you know, you pointed out a, a couple of scenarios, maybe in particular subcutaneous emphysema that limit that investigation it's important i think to also keep in mind that you can get a false negative in in one rare circumstance and that's really surrounds what you're mentioning which is sometimes a a, a typically a stab wound uh, often to the right side of the heart that comes from quite a peripheral distance and and goes through and tears the the pericardium so you have a hole in the right side of the heart which is generally reasonably low pressure you have a hole in the pericardium and you have a hole in the pleura and so these patients can be very stable um, but they have a persistent again usually right-sided hemothorax and so for I think us all, all in the trauma bay if if that patient gets a chest tube in their right chest as an initial uh, maneuver and the follow-up chest x-ray post-insertion shows a residual hemothorax Um, you need to rule that out and you know as we've shown in a couple of manuscripts uh, when you and I were in the U.S. that the the reality is uh, you know ultrasonography is probably not going to do it whether that's a formal echo or whether that is you know a bedside uh, uh, eFAST examination so there is other other things we talk about trying in terms of trying to rule that out. But, uh, and I think we'll get to it in terms of a pericardial window, but, uh, it is, it is a way that that can be, can be burned. Um, yeah. And I, the rest of yeah. your comments, of course, I totally agree with. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great point, Janet. I think, uh, just to underline that if there is an associated, uh, hemothorax, it's the, that, 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 should make us even more worried and more definitive about ruling out a cardiac injury just in case that hemopericardium is decompressed into the pericardial space you won't see it as prominently and that could yeah definitely
0: create a false negative uh echo i think your your other comment about incision choices is important too because it's certainly up front when you're learning this stuff or when you don't deal with it a lot it's it can be very confusing um i also i think we both recognize actually that you know certain um uh, well-known uh, colleagues in various places around the world have real, really strong opinions. I don't know how you approach it, but my overall sort of pathway in my, in my brain is always that a median sternotomy is probably reserved almost exclusively for uh, a precordial stab wound in a relatively stable patient and you know part of that is you as I think as you insinuate is you need time to do a sternotomy which which you don't need to do a thoracotomy which obviously is very quick Um, so the stability physiology component of it's important but your ability you know again as published by Andy Nickel and others um, to access some of the posterior mediastinal spaces or the back of the heart um, is possible through median sternotomy in the build of most you know typically males but but not always. And so for patients that are unstable, that need cardiac decompression immediately, uh, where you're not sure, in in particular gunshot wounds, um, those things tend to be a little bit more um, helpful with regard to uh, an emergency department
2: or operative uh, suite thoracotomy, I agree. Can you guys talk a little bit about um, what sort of things you have to have in your, equipment in your your thoracotomy tray so i love this um picture that you guys have in the paper of the set and it's interesting like I, I remember going to on a sort of more community rotation and um surprisingly having to or being involved in a thoracotomy and the the tray that came down was this humongous like you know cardiac surgery tray and it had instruments i had never seen before and mm. the instruments that we needed I, were like Buried somewhere deep in the tray. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about, Doctor Hamid, a little bit about what are the things that you need to have in your tray? And I think, you know, you're someone who's a systems based guy and probably has thought a lot about this. So, can you talk a little bit about what are the things you need and what are the things you probably don't need in your in your emergency department tray?
1: Oh yeah, thanks, Amir. I'm so glad that you like that picture and that whole idea about the tray. Um, we like this this begins sort of the technical aspect of this and uh i think that if you've decided to do um uh, a resuscitative thoracotomy particularly an ed thoracotomy um, i think it's very important to be to try to control the situation p to be as deliberate as possible and that makes me think that sometimes it's a surgeon that's going to make the call to do this ed thoracotomy usually and uh, uh, or m- maybe it's an emergency position, but the point is, as your as your focus narrows to the technical exercise of doing an ED thoracotomy, you want to make sure that someone else has overall control of the resuscitation. So this is like a classic example about how leadership in uh, the trauma bay is dynamic. Um, the TTL might be the one who enters to do the resuscitated thor- or the ED thoracotomy, but it, that person will have to pass the overall supervision of the resuscitation, that includes airway control, IV access, uh, uh, the, the uh, um, blood product resuscitation, and, and all of the really the, uh, the, the nuances of this resuscitation will have to pass to someone else when to give uh, calcium and magnesium and bicarb and so on. Um, and so as you start to focus on this, you wanna make sure that you position your patient well and you um, um, set up uh, uh, almost as if you were doing this in the operating room with um, you know my preference is to at least to square off the patient and then to open that set um, and you didn't ask me all that Amir, had uh, but i uh, but I think that that context is um, is important I'm sorry for the digression but then as you as you open up this tray uh, you want to make sure that I mean it's much nicer if it has only the only the equipment you need and no equipment that you don't need um and so the steps of the procedure which include um making an incision and surprisingly sometimes it's not easy to find a knife and uh we we tape uh, a 10 scalpel uh to the top of our set so that it's the first thing that comes into your hand while you're making the anterolateral uh, thoracotomy incision um an assistant can open up the set and start to lay it out uh, in sequence. Um, so um, the knife cut goes down to um, the chest wall, uh, and then I find that curved Mayo scissors are the second thing that you would reach for. Um, you punch those in uh, above the um, above the rib in the fifth intercostal space and cut the um, uh, cut the intercostals off the top of the rib and uh, enter into the pleural space. Uh, then the next thing you would one is the uh, rib spreader. Uh, to get the finichetto in um, allows you access to that pleural space. And once the finichetto spread, um, you might find that you, you could gain a few more centimeters of exposure uh, by cutting the uh, intercostal muscles uh, forward, uh, right to the lateral edge of, the, uh, of the, uh, the sternum. And those few extra centimeters can provide you a lot more exposure especially in a dimly lit setting Um, and it can also set you up for um, a um, sternal incision if you're if you're wanting to clamshell so the next thing you might need um, especially if you intend to clamshell right off the bat is the Lebski knife Um, so once you finish with your curved Mayo scissors you move to Lebski knife uh, to open the sternum and then really get great uh, exposure of the um, of the chest Uh, and then uh, usually the first move is to open the pericardium. Um, and That's often done either by uh, grasping the pericardium between long alices, uh anterior to the phrenic nerve, and, um, and then cutting the, the uh, pericardium um, between the alice clamps. Sometimes the pericardium is too tense and you might have to freehand incise the pericardium. Again, anterior to the phrenic nerve and parallel to the phrenic nerve, a few centimeters in front of the phrenic nerve to preserve that, that structure. Uh, so you'd need um, to get uh, the Alice clamps followed by a, a knife uh, and then the um, Metzenbaum scissors to extend the pericardial incision. Um, and so it's it's not a lot of instruments that you need um, uh, really to get uh, that exposure down to the heart and, and to deliver it. And so it's fun to sort of think through the steps of an ED thoracotomy and then just align your instruments that way. Um, and we actually go over our, the composition of our, of our set um, every few years, and, uh, and keep, we keep trying to
2: make it um, uh, more and more parsimonious. Dr. Ball, can you comment a little bit? What are some of the, the pearls that you have um, when, when uh, obviously, when doing this, the, the instrument tray, and perhaps both of you can talk a little bit about your triggers for, for when you would be doing this? Um, you know, you're going back to the ultrasound
0: of your heart. You should have some sense as to how much fluid is in that pericardial space. And so, if there's a, you know, a, a two centimeters or an inch of, of fluid in that patient's in neo or full rest, then honestly, you don't have to pick up the pericardium at all, as, as Dr. Ahmed points out. Just grab your scalpel and make a little hole in it, and then and then cut it anterior posterior um in theory paying attention to the to the nerve which is is not insignificant and it is important but you know oft forgotten for sure in the in the heat of the moment but uh you know it's a little bit like putting a chest tube into a a a large pneumothorax you don't have to worry so much about about injuring the lung. It's, it's far away and the heart can relatively speaking be be sort of the same um you hear a lot of debate i think uh over the years about what you can do through a left-sided anterior lateral thoracotomy. Um, and that's an interesting discussion. And I think what's often lost in it uh, as to whether you need to uh, extend over to the other side is, is a couple of things. One is patient anatomy. So I think we've all fixed multiple hearts and, and cardiac injuries through the left chest alone, not having clamshelled these patients. Um, but in other patients, you'll open them and you realize there's no anatomical or possible way to do that and so it's really a case-by-case scenario I think if you're not here a lot which is really the intended target audience of <clears throat> our general surgical colleagues then you should plan to come across the sternum if, if you know if you need it at all the, uh, away you go clamshell the patient don't don't uh don't try and be super pretty about it if you are going to do work through the left chest, though, you also have to keep in mind that when we move the heart around, in particular, you know, in the context of a median sternotomy or a bilateral uh, anterior thoracotomy or clamshell, that when you when you raise it up, when you lift it up towards their head, you you automatically change the inflow, in particular, and the outflow to some extent as well. In other words, you kink the heart, and so you will arrest that patient. The same exact thing and we talk about it a little bit in terms of classic maneuvers uh like digital or hand-based maneuvers but if you kink that that heart out into the left pleural space to the left chest it can also arrest the patient sometimes you use that to your advantage to to repair an injury in the back of the heart or or in a, in a, a challenging location but um you do have to be you have to you have to think about that in terms of where your hole in the heart is and then of course the as I was mentioning, the anatomy or the size and the, the geometry really of 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 a patient, which which can certainly vary. Um, I think at the end of the day, again, for me, as I mentioned, the patients in, in cardiac arrest are close to it, and you've made a decision in particular that you have to do this thoracotomy right now, i.e. in a, in an emergency department, uh, your threshold for coming across the sternum should be very, very low.
2: Um just just to back up for one second, again, as, as someone who um, you know, covers call, but is not a trauma surgeon. Is there is there ever a role for CT scan? You know, obviously, this we're talking with the stable patient here, but is there ever a role for a cardiac CT um, in helping you make a decision about whether this patient has a cardiac injury, Dr. Hamid?
1: I think you said it perfectly. If a patient is in any way unstable from a respiratory hemodynamic standpoint, of course, you would never want to take that patient to CT. Um, you have a lot of you have a lot of uh, diagnostic adjuncts at your disposal in the trauma bay or in the operating room, including um, um, x-ray, echocardiogram, um, even um, anterolateral thoracotomy could be considered to be a diagnostic strategy. So there's a lot that you can do uh, to figure out what's happening um, in the emergency department trauma bay or in the operating room and, and sort of bypass the CT. I think, Occasionally, patients are so stable, um, and uh, our scans, our, our CT scanners, are steps away um, that you could do a CT uh, uh, chest abdomen pelvis. And we we do we do CT so often um, to to guide our operative strategy, even if we know we're going to the operating room. That I I would say that a CT could have a role um, in operative planning, but um, certainly it it's usually. The CT usually shows you an unexpected finding in that you've already gone through everything you can um, in the trauma bay in this situation. As I mentioned, a, a thorough exam, um, like like Chad said, a good full exposure, um, uh, chest x-ray, a good fast with good views. And if you're still, um, if all of these things are non-diagnostic and the patient's stable, then certainly I think a CT chest can help you establish tra- uh, trajectory and, um, um,
0: inventory of all the injuries. Yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly agree, uh, Murad, for sure. I, I, I think certainly the reality is that, you know, for gunshot wounds and the patient that, the, the unusual patient that shows up alive with a, a concurrent or synchronous cardiac injury as a result of a portion of a missile or a missile, uh, CT is, is, clearly very helpful and then of course for the uh unusual scenario of blunt cardiac rupture that's contained and controlled with again an alive patient which is also relatively uncommon um you know that's often where you diagnose it to be quite honest with you um yeah there's there's no doubt i i wanted to just switch gears here a little bit and talk about some of the nuances of something you and i love which is the pericardial window um you know i think with the with the framing of it that A pericardial window is probably underutilized uh, in a lot of places in the world. It's a very powerful test. It can be performed in the emergency department under local anesthetic, it can be performed in the ICU and intubated patients, and of course, in the operating theater. Um, What are some of your technical pearls with regard to uh, a window um, uh, and performing it in particular?
1: I think that's such a fascinating um, point, uh, Chad. you know, sometimes we think that the pericardial window has been supplanted by the, um, the fast ultrasound, um, like kind of like the DPL, like we never use the DPL because we have, uh, abdominal fast, but I think there are important indications for, um, the subsafoid pericardial window, just like you said, like if, I mean, for one, if the fast is non-diagnostic, um, but secondly, also if there's, um, if there's an associated hemothorax, like we talked about before, you might need to sh- increase the sensitivity of your test. Subjectifoid window is good for that. And then a third very important uh, option is with an established um, hemopericardium, which you're not sure if the, it stopped bleeding yet or not. And sometimes like, um, and I'm sure Chad, you'll talk about Andy's paper that that you were instrumental on. Um, sometimes, sometimes, uh, even with an established hemopericardium, the subsephoid pericardial window has an important role, um, and so there are there are very it is still a very relevant procedure. Um, I've never done it in the ED or under local, but um, I know it can be done uh, for our patients. Usually, uh, where I've seen it done and where we've done it, we've done it in the operating room. Um, careful uh, general. Uh, uh, endotracheal anesthesia uh, obviously initiating positive pressure ventilation in a patient with an established hemopericardium is, is risky and you want to make sure that that patient is pretty well resuscitated with good access and good um, good uh, blood products standing by um, you prep the chest you you make sure that you're ready for for anything um, so it's basically a full prep from uh, neck to thighs into the bed. Um, uh, bilaterally, uh, uh, so that you're ready to extend this to a median sternotomy, um, to a laparotomy, to a thoracotomy. But the actual incision for the subxiphoid pericardial window is about six, seven centimeter incision centered on the xiphoid. Um, and um, that's carried down with Caudry. With, uh, These are stable patients, so you have time to use cautery and get set up properly. Uh, I usually um, excise the uh, xiphoid, so just kind of it's a it's a sort of a triangle, an upside down triangle at the bottom of the sternum. So I usually kind of skeletonize it with the caudry, and then try to amputate it high um, to get under the sternum, um, and then creating some space under the sternum. And sometimes you and then you uh, you have to divide the linea alba so you're getting access into that retrosternal space, c- taking care not to get into the peritoneal cavity, um, and then that's when the sort of finicky part starts. You have to sort of clear away the, um, the fat. Um, you might have to divide some fibers of the uh, central tendon, of the diaphragm to get up to the pericardium. And it's, a, it's often a deep hole under the sternum. Um, you can actually kind of push down on the diaphragm to try to bring that pericardium down towards you a little bit better. And when it's kind of in range, uh, you grasp the pericardium with alices to the left and right of midline, and then feather through that um, uh, with a scalpel uh, to get to the pericardium. And sometimes I find, uh, I'm maybe not the slickest, but there's sometimes a few false starts. You know, you have tissue up in your alices that you think might be diaphragm, but uh, but might be pericardium, but it might be diaphragm. And so you sort of deepen that that vertical incision between the alices until you finally do arrive at the pericardium. And when you do, it's pretty clear because you have a sort of a grip on it—that's a firm, definite grip. It's really important to make sure the field is dry uh, because um, you don't want uh, the blood, any blood in the field, to mix with the fluid that's going to come out of the pericardium, which will sort of contaminate the um, the diagnosis. And then you and then when you're on the pericardium, you can size it vertically, and it's one of the most—I don't know—I find it's one of the most thrilling and gratifying things in surgery when you see that clear pericardial fluid come through and and you know that you have a negative um, subservoid pericardial window.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. That's a beautiful description. Um, you know, you touched on a lot of things that are really critical. You're lighting down that, what can be deep yeah. hole in a, in a you know, in particular middle-aged thick male uh, is critical. And obviously if you're outside of the operating room, the lighting becomes even more of a challenge. So you have to set that up, up front. And you know, I would re-emphasize your comment about having a non-bloody field before you actually um, violate the, the pericardium with your metzenbaum scissors. The the confusion if there's rundown from your, you know, removal of your ziphoid or the tissues around it, um, it becomes very confusing. And so for me anyway, I always put fresh white sponges all the way around. So that blood is very, very obvious. Um, the other thing I think that Andy Nickel in South Africa taught both of us was to uh, employ a sponge on a stick uh, technique to, in a sort of a corkscrew way down that hole to try and move the pericardial fat side to side and out of your your relatively small direct line to the heart. That's a very, very helpful tool.
1: Yeah, that's a great move.
0: and you know his name keeps coming up of course as as we both mentioned it now and and the uh, south african cape town group did do a randomized control trial that looked at Mm -hmm. um, very directly if you have a positive window in a stable patient that has had a cardiac stab do you really have to proceed with classic sternotomy looking for heart uh, injuries that are uh, repairable or need to be repaired because there's certainly a lot of those patients that may have scratches on their heart that really you don't need to be there for, and that that's a nuance I think we'll probably we'll, we'll leave behind and and we'll have uh, a link to that and also surgery paper, um, but you know the classic obviously uh, scenario of a positive pericardial window, you then proceed to a sternotomy for full evaluation of the heart. I, I think probably stands in most uh, most circumstances if we switch gears here again and you know we've gone through you've gone through beautifully the presentation of these patients the physiology of them the diagnostic workup and then the the exposure the incisions so now you have a hole in the heart ideally it's in your hand how do you control that hemorrhage either in the short term setting up for a repair or maybe in the long term while you're waiting for help from your cardiac surgery colleagues if the repair is um uh foreign to you or it's extremely complex for example uh coronary uh artery or something that that is uh requires maybe uh bypass or or something like that how How do you control that initial hemorrhage? what are your options and and tools in the in the toolbox
1: um yeah chad chad, we talked a little bit about um the exposure uh so i agree i i didn't uh, I forgot to mention, but I totally agree with the idea of starting with a wide exposure um, and having a really low threshold to doing the um, uh, uh, sternal incision for a an natural lateral thoracotomy. So it, you're almost doing like a clamshell. Um, and that can get you down onto that pericardium. And that first move is to open the pericardium. Um, it, and if you, it, the, I think the best thing to do once that pericardium is widely opened. And you evacuate the clot from the heart, uh, from around the heart, and the, and, and release that tamponade. Um, sometimes, if you're lucky, the heart begins to fill, and um, you'll start to get perfusion back. And once you see, once you release the tamponade and you get that cardiac filling, um, and you get, you start to get um, some perfusion, um, you kind of know that things are on the right track, and you don't have to do anything. Uh, aggressive at that point, Um, you've you've done the biggest thing, which is to decompress the the cardiac tamponade, allow the heart to fill, um, check in with the resuscitation team to make sure that uh, volume is going in. And then just digital control of the laceration is a key move. And I think there's so much to be said for um, just patient, calm, gentle digital control of that laceration. That gives you time to reestablish your exposure it even gives time to um, uh, change your venue and go up to the operating room where where you'll have access to uh, good lighting, um, good sterile field, good equipment, the right sutures that you want, pledges, um, and a, a team of uh, nurses and anesthesiologists that will really increase the power and capability of this uh, of this uh, repair. Um, so I guess it's a long way of saying um. I think digital control is a very good opening move. Would
0: would you agree? Yeah, I, I mean I think it should always be your default. You know, our hands are magical intuitive instruments. And uh, you know, as you're as you're implying, it doesn't mean putting your finger in the hole. It just means covering it and supporting that um that immediate uh hemostatic move. Um, you know, in the manuscript uh there um there's a beautiful picture of a Foley catheter, which is oft talked about, but certainly comes with with risks. Uh, uh, what do you think of, <clears throat> of putting Foley's in hearts and, and when do you or not do that?
1: Uh, I, I've been sort of conditioned not to use it. I'm so worried that the Foley will pull out, but I do like it as an option um, and um, especially for maybe a larger wound and you can sort of hyperinflate that balloon it has to be you have to be very careful once it's in to be very very gentle with it i think a little bit of leak from around a fingertip around a foley is totally fine um and it's certainly better than the the uh uh, the possibility of pulling that foley too so just sort of very gently placing the foley and inflating the balloon in a larger wound i think would make sense um but chad certainly would love to know what you think about that
0: yeah no i concur i mean i I've sort of been called secondarily to look at heart wounds where the Foley catheter, I think like we all, we've all we all seen, quite honestly, has, uh, has pulled through the heart and taken a difficult situation and made it effectively impossible with subsequent patient demise. So you have to be, as you say, very, very careful with that catheter. Uh, a standard Foley is typically what we use if we are going to use it. And uh, honestly, I think that means you don't hand that job over to the, medical student to you, you know or even maybe the junior resident that's somebody probably is at the faculty level or experience level it needs to be holding that because you're going to use a combination of of digital sort of ceiling pressure and 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 uh, stabilization of that of that Foley. um but yeah cert- certainly bad things can happen you know the the other things of course that I think we all think about but probably don't use very often is if your heart really is Ah, uh, quite empty or reasonably empty. You, you can put clamps on it too, like big vascular Satinsky clamps, right-angle clamps, like that can work very well uh, as well. Obviously, if you clamp a coronary, particularly uh, a critical one, you're gonna have the ischemic problems with it. But hopefully, it's not on there very long.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In the in this picture, the in this this is uh, still from a video. I, I it looks like there's a little too much tension on that and
0: that fully do you do you agree? Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't it. know. It's 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 hard to know. It's it seems it looks like it's working. And in the video, it certainly yeah. works. So you know, yeah. it's yeah. it's okay. Yeah.
2: So can I ask, um, Doctor Hamid, when you're in the operating room? So let's say you know this is this is now you're your set up. You've managed to to control the hemorrhage enough to the point that the patient is now in the operating room, either with a left anterolateral thoracotomy or uh, sternotomy, if you had that luxury of time what are the, some of the principles of actually repairing these injuries? You know, we, you sort of intimated about how delicate the heart can be. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, like some very specific things that you actually talked about in the paper, like what sutures do you use? How do you go about um, putting those, placing those sutures in? Do you use budgets? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: I mean, great point. Um, and these are some of the technical details in the paper that we want to make sure we included um and like chad said at the beginning i'm i'm sure many people have uh different strategies or different um tactics in this situation so um what we're saying might not be the only way to do it but it's one one of the ways uh so um i think again you know taking a Uh, sort of a more global view, Um, you want to coordinate carefully with anesthesia. Once you've got digital control, let your anesthesiologist know what you're seeing, um, coordinate with them. Um, How is the airway being managed? How's the resuscitation? How's patient hemodynamics? which you can see directly also in the moon, communicate to them. Um, I think that certain adjuncts to the resuscitation, like a little bit of volume and calcium uh, are are helpful. Um, Calcium is so important. I've learned over the years for myocardial contractility, but also for that vasomotor tone and also for um, hemostasis. So um, so yeah, how's the resuscitation going in that communication? And in terms of the question you're asking me about repairing the myocardial injury, um, if, it's a, if it's a simple stab wound, it's just a matter of closing the hole and there's any style you can use for it, um, uh you can use simple interrupted you could use uh figure of eights you could use horizontal mattress you could use running um all of these will have um their pluses and minuses uh my my preference is to use um 30 proline on it with an mh needle um the mh needle it has a good curve and it's big enough to arc through um, so that's my my preferred uh uh Needle and suture of choice. I think in the paper we we say a three o or a four o prolene on an MH. If you're suturing on ventricle, um, the idea is to maintain digital control with uh, uh, on the laceration, and then um, pass that needle um, uh, uh, below your uh, finger. The, the heart's going to rock and and uh, and sort of t- twist away from you occasionally, and so. Um, you have to sort of have uh, sort of mimic its motion, uh, account for the motion, and then create an arcing bite um, below the fingertip and pass it uh, through and through the laceration. Um, With the horizontal mattress, the nice thing is if you have a double-armed proline, you can take the second needle and also pass that under your finger. And now suddenly you have like a horizontal mattress suture uh, that's spanning the laceration, um, and I think Chad points this out so beautifully in the paper that to use the curve of the needle is very important. Um, it's 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 a it's a key point to pronate the wrist, and as you arc the needles through, the more the the way you use the curve, there's so many benefits in that. It catches a little bit more tissue um, in your bite, um, and uh, so it's less likely to pull through. And also with that pronation effect, the needle will stably come through the tissue so that when the tip emerges on the other side, it won't retract back. Um, and this is a key point that we always talk about with the residents is if you if you've appropriately used the curve of the needle, that needle tip will be stable when it comes to you. can actually let go with your driver and pick it up on the other side and arc it through on the other side. Um, there, There are a few nuances, which maybe I'll hand over to Chad about uh, when to use pledgets and um and what to do around the coronary arteries,
0: yeah, I think those are all those are all pearls. you, you know there's a whole set of principles I think, like we all know um, surrounding sewing soft things, obviously, in my daily job, that's liver and pancreas, but the heart, although it's easier to sew than those two structures um, the muscle still is is certainly applicable to that to that domain um, as you pointed out you know using the curve of the needle is not only suggested it's essential because if you pull that needle through like you can and, and get away with easily in bowel surgery you will make that hole bigger and, and worse and, and potentially like the Foley catheter uh, go from uh, challenging to, to catastrophic so really good suturing technique in those basic fundamental principles that were taught from you know intern on um, really do need to apply despite the excitement probably that you feel at the time. Um, you know in H.P.B. surgery we use you know 4O's more commonly 5 and 6O's on RB1 needles and again I would re-emphasize that that is not the workhorse needle uh, or suture for most cardiac injuries the as you point out the 3O Uh, on an mh needle in particular is is the way to go for for most scenarios um when we start to talk about those those more fine sutures though you're you're right it's more about sometimes closing scratches in the heart or working you know back and forth and and under and around uh, coronary arteries i think the truth is that um if you're in a location where you don't have access to cardiac surgery then it is what it is but if you if you do and you believe that the laceration extends into a coronary, Um, you should probably ask for help. Um, More often than not, those patients will go on bypass and they will uh, get an extensive and and very nuanced repair that is beyond the capabilities of of most of us. Um, The other thing to keep in mind is this picture shows is that uh, it's sort of a, a setup obviously for an atrial appendage injury here with a clamp, but we can use staplers in particular in the atrial appendages. A TX or a TL or a TA, depending on the company you choose, uh, linear stapler uh, is absolutely superb, very much like the lung uh, and, and works very well. And it works to the to the extent that you don't have to over-sow that staple line uh, almost ever. Um, so yeah, I think that... the, the take-home message is that that 3-O-proline MH needle is, is your workhorse and you should get that out early. Sorry, Morad, I lost you there.
1: Sorry, Ted, I just wanted to ask you, is that uh, a stapler with vascular load um, or a blue load? Does it, does it depend on the thickness of
0: the structure you're stapling? Yeah, great, great point. Always, um, always depends on on what you're what you're uh, trying to accomplish in terms of the anatomy and the and the thickness. But in general, that's going to be a vascular stapler. You betcha. So sometimes that's got the V on it. Sometimes that's an X. Again, it depends on the on the company that you're that you're uh, you're pulling from. You know, Morad, I wanted to switch gears, maybe one last time here, again, and and ask in in particular a couple of very directed questions. Uh, One is, do you close in your practice the pericardium on the way out, and if so, why so, and if not, why not?
1: I um I like to close the pericardium just um uh just it's just a preference to restore anatomy when possible. Um, I know that. Um, there are different views on this um, for a uh, in um, a an natural lateral thoracotomy um, I do like to close it because I find that um, the heart really swings back into position you know if it, it kind of herniates to the left when you have the pericardium open on the left um, so if you can put a few interrupted um, ovirals or two ovicrals in the pericardium just just the act of closing down the pericardium a little bit will swing that heart back into its anatomic position for the for the, uh, anterolateral thoracotomy. Um, you still leave gaps in the pericardium in case there's a little bit of pleural fluid or residual blood so that it can leak out to the chest into the into the pleural space to be evacuated by a chest tube. Um, with, the, with the median sternotomy, I think it's probably not as essential in terms of cardiac herniation to close it. I still do like to close it um to create that sort of smooth barrier um, to the rest- under the sternum and if someone has to ever have a redo sternotomy um you'll still have that plane preserved there um and um in the paper we describe sort of teeing off the bottom of the um the uh, pericardial incision when you do immediate sternotomy so you do this long vertical pericardial incision but you tee off the bottom and you can leave that bottom part of the T open, again, for for the entry of chest tubes and for, for drainage of any residual fluid or blood after the procedure. Um, so um, my answer would be my pre- that my preference is to close the pericardium where possible. I do know that sometimes it's not technically feasible to close, particularly if the heart is really swollen after big resuscitation. Um, and occasionally that might be in a damage control situation where you just actually, you're overall just temporarily closing the chest, taking the patient to ICU and you can return. Hopefully at that time, if the swelling is down, you might have a second shot to try to reapproximate the pericardium. Um, I but think uh, I'm totally open to a discussion about that.
0: Yeah, no, I think you've hit all the relevant factors that, at least in my mind, go into that decision to close or not to close. And my preference, my bias is, of course, the same as yours. Which probably shouldn't surprise us, given given our our similar training. Um, yeah. The next question then would be about drains. Uh, wh- what cavities do you drain? Do you do the pericardium? Do you do the pleural spaces? Or, and if so, why? And what goes into that decision?
1: Yeah, uh, and I'd love to know what uh, what you and Amir think about this too. But um, for uh to, in closing, uh, uh, a <laughs> the closure is interesting. The cl- closure takes way longer than um, the actual exposure and the cardiac repair and everything you do on the inside. I find that this is, takes a long time, but it's pretty fun to do a meticulous job of the closure. Um, but the drain issue is really important. Um, and uh, so certainly with an lateral thoracotomy, um, you want to uh, have uh, the pleural space drained with a couple of chest tubes. You've been in that chest um, and there's for sure going to be bleeding from the chest wall and uh, from the pericardial edges and um, and from the the stab wound itself and if there's an associated lung injury um there could be an air leak as well so you want to make sure that that pleural space is well drained um with an antrilateral thoracotomy i think that if the if there's gaps in the pericardium um it might be possible to uh just leave it at that with the drains in the pleural space but if you have a uh if you have a nice um trajectory to get the chest tube into the pericardium um that would be reassuring if you could also drain the um the uh, pericardial space but the i think with the median sternotomy the pericardium is nicely drained by two chest tubes coming from below um in the epigastrium um so in the in the paper we say to make sure you go sort of through the uh to the rectus muscles on both sides to avoid a um a uh Uh, Hernia at the uh, chest tube entry site, so I usually try to, you know, tunnel two chest tubes from these um, these uh, incisions and these independent stab wound incisions in the epigastrium. Um, One chest tube is an angled chest tube that sits uh, sort of behind the heart and sort of takes a posterior anteroposterior trajectory, and one is a more uh, is a straight chest tube that goes more vertically up and sits anterior to the heart uh, in the pericardial space. And, that, and, um, and then you can try to close the pericardium over that. Um, just one more, just going back uh, for a moment to the anterolateral, sorry, to the anterolateral thoracotomy chest tube. You'd have to place those chest tubes a little bit lower than usual because, um, because they're sort of passing below that incision, which is usually in the line where we normally place chest tubes. So those have to be sort of guided in carefully, manually, uh, just above the diaphragm, a couple of centimeters or a couple of interspaces below your anterolateral thoracotomy incision.
2: So what I'd like to do in, in closing is ask the both of you to talk um, about the top three pearls or tips or pitfalls, even top three things that you want our listeners to walk away from after listening to this or watching this uh, on on our YouTube channel. Top three things that you want people to walk away with with um, with cardiac injuries, and maybe we'll start with Doctor Ball. Well, thanks, America. That's, that's a fun question.
0: I, I guess in in temporal sequence, I would say um, becoming very very good at obtaining um, reasonable cardiac windows in the extended fast examination is critical. Um, the way I think that you do that, I think the way that we all learn. How to do all of this is just practice, 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 iterations and volume. Right, same concept. You can't, you can't get your way around that. So, looking at, at a, as a trainee, every single heart you can in an emergency department for every single injured trauma uh, patient, for example, is helpful because you you really ingrain what's normal, and as soon as you see abnormal, boy, is it obvious to you. So, the extended fast examination will be number one. Uh, I would also throw in there that although one of the dominant emergency medicine you know point of care ultrasound uh courses starts you in the right upper quadrant never ever do that when dr Rizicki, uh grace Rizicki um invented the fast examination the reason again as i said earlier that you start at the heart is because that's what is going to uh change what you do in the in real time immediately uh, in terms of uh physiologically critical patient with a a precordial stab. So start at the heart, get good at it, and then uh, trust it because it's a very good test outside of the um, uh, scenarios that Dr. Hamid and and I mentioned. Second thing I would just reiterate again, maybe for the second or third time here is um, get your sutures open early. And in general, that's gonna be a 3O proline on an SH, uh, sorry, on an MH needle, MH. Uh, However, have other choices around in particular, a 4.0 proline on an on an SH and potentially a 5.0 or a 6.0 on, on an RB1. Um, the third thing I would say is uh, that we haven't really talked about is the importance of evaluating the heart for internal injury after uh, a lot of these stab injuries or stab traumas. So if you piece together the literature in the various series over the last 50 years or so, you could certainly defend the idea that about 15% of these patients will have internal cardiac injuries, meaning valvular injuries or septal injuries, things that you're not going to be able to see in the operating room repairing the essentially the outside of the heart. And so all of these patients, as mandatory, should undergo post-operative, ideally, transesophageal echo, and if not, transthoracic echo to rule out those internal injuries, which as we all know now are often fixed percutaneously um, in really neat ways by our uh, interventional cardiac uh, surgeons and and cardiologists. So those would be my big three, I think, uh, given our discussion. Thanks. Fantastic. Dr. Hamid.
1: A couple of minutes to think about it. So I'm going to put mine under
0: resuscitation, exposure, and
1: control. So for resuscitation, I think it's very important to take a team-based approach to this, uh, careful coordination with um, the emergency anesthesia and surgery teams, and in particular, you don't you want to make sure the patient is well resuscitated or on their way with good access to being resuscitated, because you don't want to initiate positive pressure ventilation in a patient with tamponade unless you're prepared to resuscitate. And the idea is that. If you could just create a little bit of intravascular volume and some a, a little bit of central venous pressure, that's sometimes enough just to offset that tamponade, so that when you introduce positive pressure ventilation, the patient doesn't arrest. So that just simultaneous uh, resuscitation, intubation, and decompression—it it has to go on together, and you have to have good backup with resuscitation as you enter into this uh, battle. Um, in terms of exposure, um, I really like what Chad said about the clamshell extension Um, the incision should be made the skin incision anyway should be made in my opinion starting to the right of the sternum actually and then coming across uh, to the left antralateral thoracotomy and then arcing up upward a little bit uh, as you move laterally. Um, I find that sometimes that incision is a little bit misplaced you know it can be sometimes too high through the breast or too low and the axis is limited but one reliable landmark for this, I think, is the inframammary fold. Um, everyone has, has it. And um, if you sort of center on that inframammary fold, uh, you, um, you don't have to landmark too much. Uh, you just take the knife, begin it to the right sternal border and just take it across that inframammary fold and down to the uh, close to the bed, arcing up a little bit. It's super simple to do and you're already down onto the chest wall in, uh, in a few seconds, and then you can just punch into the intercostal space at that level. And usually that's the right spot. Um, and then control, um, I would just say that everybody with, um, with, uh, who, who's been committed to um, an antrilateral thoracotomy has to have the pericardium opened. Um, don't back down if you think the pericardium looks empty. Um, I've definitely been fooled by that and uh, Once you're in, you are committed to exploring that pericardial space, and there's often a lot of blood in there that's kind of hidden. Um, So do open the pericardium uh, and don't try to evaluate the the heart from outside, even though it's sometimes tempting to do so. Um, Digital control is a very useful tool, as we highlighted. Um, We didn't highlight things like aortic cross-clamping and pulmonary hilar cross-clamping, but I think those are very strong adjuncts too. The aortic cross clamp is not just for controlling bleeding below the diaphragm. It is helpful to restore cardiac perfusion. So if the, if the heart doesn't start by simple uh, de- decompression of the pericardium, cross-clamping the um, aorta starting compressions will, might help you with coronary perfusion. Similarly, uh, dividing the inferior pulmonary ligament and cross-clamping the pulmonary hilum in patients with associated lung injuries Uh, can prevent um, uh, bleeding from the lung and also air embolism so those are some important steps of control that we didn't um, didn't highlight too much in our discussion but that are in the paper
2: you've been listening to cold steel the official podcast of the canadian journal of surgery if you like what you've heard please leave us a review on itunes we love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at camjsurge. Thanks again.